Doug asked me to speak about the infinite God and then critiques my time management skills. <laughs> I don't think that's a fair setup. I think he said I have 45 minutes, so let me see what time it is. I've got to do math now. Okay, open to Exodus chapter 3. I'm just going to read a few verses, then we will ask God to be our teacher. Exodus chapter 3, verse 10. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. God furthermore, God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Let us pray. God in heaven, we have not come to study the things that are made. We have come to study the one who made all things. How much more do we need your help? So, Father, we ask that by the Spirit of God, you would teach us through your Son that we may know the true God. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 2 of the London Baptist Confession addresses the doctrine of God, His being, His attributes, His works, as well as the Trinity. Before we dive in to this glorious chapter, uh, I want to lay out a few fundamental points and then we'll walk through. I hope you have an outline. I did pass one out, uh, or one was passed out. Uh, I'm not quite thrilled with it, but I, I think it, it is very close to accurately grasping what's in the confession. But a few, a few uh, preliminary points. And the first one is this. Chapter 2 of the Second London Baptist Confession is the most fundamental and glorious chapter in the entire confession. There is not a chapter more fundamental, nor is there a chapter more glorious than this chapter here in the confession. Why is that? Because here and here alone, only in this chapter are we dealing with that which is absolutely necessary. Scripture did not have to be. It didn't have to, creation did not have to be. There did not have to be a mediator. There did not have to be salvation. You can strip away every single chapter in the confession except this one. Almost all of the contents in this chapter would be completely unchanged. Every other chapter is completely contingent upon the contents of chapter 2. God, who He is, and what He has done. We might be tempted to think that the first chapter is the most important. That's why it's first. (laughs) 
They put it there. They gave us the doctrine of Scripture. And, and, and it is a glorious chapter, and it is a wonderful chapter, but it's only important because of whose speech it is. It is God's speech. It is the speech of the one in the second chapter. If you read chapter 1 and you got to chapter 2 and it was not this God, we would throw out chapter 1. Chapter 1 is important because of chapter 2. So, number 2 is more fundamental than number 1. We may be tempted to think that chapter 8 is more glorious than chapter 2. Because it is there that we encounter who? Our mediator, Jesus Christ. But if we discover that the mediator was not God from God, very God of very God, true God, chapter 8 would not be glorious. Because we would not have hope. We would not have infallible assurance that our salvation was secure. We can go on and talk about all the wonderful teachings that the confession has, effectual calling, justification, adoption, and saving faith. All these might compete for first place either in our affection or in what we put as supremely important in, this, in, in our confession. Or even the 26th chapter, which addresses the doctrine of the church and Baptist distinctives. But we must remind ourselves that Christ's mediatorial work, the benefits of redemption that he accomplished, the church that he established, is all contingent upon the fact that this one is truly God. So this is the most fundamental and glorious chapter of the entire confession for every other chapter hinges upon chapter 2. Further, this is another preliminary note that we want to look at, is this is a historic chapter. And I don't mean by historic, all, all the chapters are historic, right? I mean, they were all written at a particular place in a particular time. But what I mean is this is a chapter that is reaching back. The, the reformers were not trying to add anything new. They were not trying to be innovative when it came to the doctrine of God, His being, His attributes, and the Trinity. They were trying to receive that faith that had once for all been delivered to the saints, that had endured the fires of controversy, and pass it down with great clarity. So we get chapter 26 on the confession where we have our Baptist distinctives. But here, when we come to chapter 2, we say things that you're going to find in the Belgian Confession of Faith, that you're going to find in the 39 Articles, that you're going to find in the Westminster Confession of Faith, that you're going to find in the Savoy Declaration, and then we can just keep working all the way back to what Brother Steve talked about this morning, uh, Nicaea 325. This is trying to carry forth the doctrine of God as it has been understood in Scripture and received by the Church of Jesus Christ. These two points that this chapter is the most fundamental and glorious chapter in the confession, and that it's a historical chapter reaching backwards, should create in us, as we come to it, a posture of humility. We must come with our knees bowed. We must come saying, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. We must come and plead with the infinite God to be our teacher. Because every other chapter we can study something that has been made. Here we are studying the one who has not been made, but made all things. And not only is it because he's, this is the most fundamental and glorious, but also we should seek to look at this as a historical document and imitate the framers of it by doing what they did and going back in order that we may continue to go forward as our brothers before us have. That said, let's look at chapter 2 of the London Baptist Confession. So you see there's, uh, I think, six major points. Um, we begin with the existence 
of God. The existence of God. The Lord our God is but one, only living and true God. Now these are some things that you could say about yourself. You're one, you're living, and it is true that, that you are present and, and alive today. But what it's getting at here is something fundamentally different. These are not things, we don't say these things about God in the same way that we say them about ourselves. God is one differently than we are. It's not sufficient that we just take this oneness and bring it to the doctrine of the Trinity. It's not sufficient that we just take this oneness and deny either polytheism or tritheism, again, as was spoken about already. But this is about the uniqueness of God. There is no one like this. He says in Isaiah, what will you, to what will you compare me? Is there anything that is like our God? And the answer is No. There is nothing and there is no one like our God. He is what we read in Exodus chapter 3. I am that I am. The one who is, as the prophets speak. The one who Jesus was able to say about himself before Abraham was, I am. He's incomparable. That is what it means that he is the one living true and he is our God. This is what the framers of the confession say following Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. This one who exists is our God, but it's not just that he is our God. He is the God of all things. How God is, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite and being and perfection. This is now moving us to the essence of, of God. So we have the existence of God in that first part, and then we have the essence of God, which, uh, which follows. How is God one whose subsistence is in and of himself? He does not exist from another. We, we come from God. God didn't come from anything. God is the sufficient explanation for his existence. Nothing but God explains why God. His existence is his essence. And I think that's what the confession is doing here. Here you have the existence of God in that very beginning part. How does God exist? He exists in and of himself, and his existence is infinite in being and perfection. So that's the existence of God, the essence of God. Look at this. Whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. When we come to this, we ask, what is the essence of God? I think the essence of God is everything that was referred to just in those First few sentences that we have, or first few uh, phrases that we have there. This is the existence of God is his essence. He is the one who is I am. And the confession says whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. This, notice the placement of this. If you had to place this statement somewhere, where would you place it? I think we're tempted to think that we would place this at the end. After all, that, after all that we have said, we will now say he is incomprehensible. The confession takes a different route. God is. God's existence is his essence. And that is why he is incomprehensible. Because he just is. I am. Wrap your mind around that. I am. That is who God is. His essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. It puts it here at this spot in the confession because what this is going to do now is govern everything else that we say about God. 
We don't say God is incomprehensible. When we get to the end, we affirm that God is, that God's existence is His essence, and then we say He's incomprehensible. And God's incomprehensibility then governs our speech about God as we go through the rest of the confession. So notice it places it here and not at the end. This is not after we have said everything that we can say. We then turn around and confess that God is incomprehensible. Nor do we say God is incomprehensible and walk away. There's more. We have a pattern here to follow. We're being discipled. Yes, God is incomprehensible, but there are things that we can truly apprehend about this God. But this this doctrine placed here is doing a, a lot of theological work. It's that reminder that the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. And that's a rule that we want to keep in our mind as we do theology. When, pardon me, the eternal Son of God became man, his human nature did not become infinite. It did not become divine. It cannot become divine because the human nature of Jesus Christ is a created human nature. It cannot be infinite, even though it belongs to one who is according to his divinity. And this helps us as we think about, this is not just about how we, what God is and what created things are, but how we even begin to think about God. So it's not just about being, it's about knowing. When we talk about him, all of our language has to be careful as we speak about the one who we don't comprehend, but who does comprehend himself. God knows himself, and God knows himself infinitely, and God knows himself perfectly. We do not comprehend God. There are true things that we can know about God, but we cannot comprehend him. So here, we're going to now have a, a, a something that, that kind of helps us. God's thoughts are not just more than our thoughts, they're fundamentally different than our thoughts. We are receivers of knowledge. God creates all the things that we know, and God's existence is what we come to know through His created effects. So God has a perfect knowledge of Himself. We have a finite knowledge of God that is given to us. So we know finite things, but we also know them in a finite way. God knows infinite things, and he knows them infinitely from himself, the same exact way that God exists. If you want fancy words for this, it's the difference between what is called archetype theology and ectype theology. God's thoughts, his perfect thoughts, he knows himself perfectly. He has then fashioned a knowledge that is fit for creatures that is finite, fit to their mode of knowing, which is corresponding to their mode of being, which is finite. So, we have that distinction. God knows himself. He can comprehend himself. We can't. This then should shape the way that we begin to speak about God. We want to avoid what's called univocal God talk. That is, when I say something about God, it means exactly the same thing as when I say it about Doug. I say Doug is kind. Doug is wise. God is wise. God is wise in the same way that Doug is wise. No, we don't want to say that. Doug has knowledge. Doug has wisdom. Doug grows in those things. God does not have those things. God doesn't have anything. God just is God. And he doesn't, because of that, he doesn't grow 
in these things. We also don't think that our speech about God is completely different. This is called equivocal God talk. Or, you know, the, the term equivocation. When I say something like trunk, and I'm thinking about swim trunks, and you're thinking about a tree trunk, we're using the same term, but they have completely different meanings. We want to avoid that as well. We're not saying we're saying the same exact thing when we use our speech about God, nor are we saying that we're saying something completely different. Where our speech about God is what is called analogical. We're saying that there is something that is true about God that we have known, but we have to then qualify that, usually with a bunch of negative attributes, which we'll get to shortly. Okay, uh, This doesn't mean that all of our speech about God is metaphorical. We have literal speech about God, and we have metaphorical speech about God. When we say that God is wise, we're saying that literally about God. But then we say God is not wise like we are wise. When we say God is a rock, we're not speaking literally about God. We're speaking metaphorically about God. But when we're speaking metaphorically about God, we're still communicating something true. What are we communicating when we say something about a rock? Well, depends on the context. It could mean immovable. It could mean strength. It could mean protection. And those are all things that we are communicating about God through the metaphor of a rock. So, incomprehensibility shapes the way we think about God, and it shapes the way that we speak about God. And we know God through his effects, what he has made. So we know him through created effects. Because the finite world cannot comprehend the infinite God. It can't take it into its being. And so when we speak about God, we try to say a bunch of negative things. It's much easier to say what God is not than it is to say what God is. And then we speak of him by way of imminence. We say he is like this, but in the most way and far different than we are. And we'll get to that as we continue going. So we've looked at the existence of God, the essence of God, the incomprehensibility of God, and now the spirituality of God. Pulling from a good proof text, John chapter 4, verse 24, God is spirit. And as spirit, what does the confession help us see? That he is invisible. Now, God can't make himself visible. He can't will himself to be visible. He just is invisible. You can't make God visible, nor can you see God. That's just who he is. So that's, that's helpful to keep in mind as we read through the confession. These are things that God can't make himself other than. God can't make himself visible to you. His effects, which truly reveal who he is, can be visible to you. But the essence of God will never be visible to you. God dwells in unapproachable light. And that's not because we're sinful. It's because he's the eternal, uncreated creator of all things, the I Am, and we are his creation. Now, sin doesn't help that, but remove sin, and that chasm would still remain. So, as spirit, he is invisible. As spirit, he is without body. He doesn't have body parts. So this is, this is helpful as a hermeneutical tool. When we come to Scripture and we read body parts ascribed to God, we say this is speaking metaphorically. It is telling us something true about God, but it's telling us something true about God by way of metaphor. So maybe his hand refers to his strength or his might. Again, he has no body. God can't will himself to have a body. Now you may say, wait a sec. He did. He did, according to a created human 
nature. The one who is the eternal son took to himself a body. But the divinity of God did not take to itself a body. It can't do that. That's why when we look at Christ, we say he's one person with two distinct, unmixed natures. God can't will himself to have a body. You can't will God to have a body. He doesn't have body or parts. We may speak what would be called improperly when we say something like, God bled. The blood of God bought the church, Acts chapter 20, 28. And that, that is true. It is the one who is God who bled, but how did he bleed? Did he bleed as God? No, because the Father can't bleed. The Son can't bleed. I'm sorry, the Spirit can't bleed. How is it then the Son bled? He bled according to his humanity, not according to his deity. God is also without parts. What kind of parts? Any kind of parts. <laughs> you laugh. <laughs> it's, it's, huh? Part, yeah, it's, a, it's not as easily received or a, a, a simple doctrine, but it is a truth that God is simple. And God is not simple like simple Simon. We look at him and say, oh, he's just a simple fellow. No, when we say God is simple, we're saying that God is not composed of parts. One author says the principal claim of divine simplicity, which is the idea that God isn't composed of parts, is that God is not composed of parts. Whatever is composed of parts depends on its parts in order to be as it is. So whatever has parts depends on its parts to be what it is. But we affirm that all that is in God is God. You say, well, what is that? Well, now we're back to divine incomprehensibility, right? His existence is his essence, and we can work through that. But God is not composed of different things like goodness, like love, like knowledge, like wisdom. And you take all these things together, and these things make up God. No, God has no parts. This follows for us doctrinally from the doctrine of divine aseity. That God is from himself and not from anything that is not God. There's not these things that are behind God like goodness, love, knowledge, wisdom, which he corresponds to. Nor are these things somehow below God that he pulls together and makes himself these things. Say, so, well then what are these things? Well, when we see God's operations and we see God's effects in the world, we say, ah, that's, that's goodness. That's speaking truly about God, but that's not speaking wholly about God. That's saying something that's true, but that's not saying everything that cannot, can be said. Well, why not? Because the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. That's why. So we speak truly about God, but we don't speak wholly about God. And we do when we see the operations of God in the world, and we see the effects of God in the world, in our minds... We look and we say, that is goodness right there. God was good to so-and-so, this church, this person, in this particular situation. There are other times where we look and say, that's God's wrath over there towards that person in that particular situation. And we can distinguish them in the, insofar as we're distinguishing the created effect that we see. But these distinctions do not actually exist in God. You look at water and you ask a question of water. Is water destructive 
or is water life-giving? And the answer is, yeah. It depends on the effects that it produces. And those effects truly come from water. We say the same thing about God. When we see goodness in the world, we see the wrath of God, we see the love of God, we distinguish them in their effects and operations, but these things are not truly distinct in God, because God is not made up of a bunch of things that are not God. It comes from his aseity. It comes from his singularity, that God truly is one. He just is God. Nothing else. When we say the oneness of God, we are taking it to mean that he is not composed of anything that is not God. He just is one God. That is what he is. It follows from his dependence. No one has given anything to God, and nothing has made God what he is. It follows from God's infinity. If God is composed of parts like goodness, like love, like knowledge... Those parts are either infinite or they're finite. If they're finite, then God is made up of a bunch of finite parts. And something that's made up of a bunch of finite parts is going to end up being finite. Or maybe they're all infinite and somehow mutually independent, mutually dependent upon one another, coextensive in God and informing all the various attributes of God. But the problem is, if they're infinite then they're completely comprehensive and you wouldn't be able to distinguish between two infinites. Or back to the problem of some of these are finite and, and, and God is then made up of things that are finite. John Owen reasons similarly. It's good to look at John Owen. And the reason it's good to look at John Owen is because first, he's John Owen. It's always good to look at John Owen. Every time you get a chance to do so, you should. Secondly, the doctrine of simplicity is not something that's necessarily agreed on today. And it's something that people say this is something that is a, a, a Roman Catholic doctrine that is going to come straight from Thomas Aquinas and is going to lead you right down the Tiber River back to Rome. And I think if John Owen managed to escape that, I think we would do well to follow in his footsteps. Not only was he an ardent anti-papist, but he was also hard. Uh, he, he also wrote very critically of neonomians like John Baxter. You can keep your doctrine of justification by faith alone correct and affirm doctrines that Thomas Aquinas just so happened to also affirm that God is simple. So John Owen reasons, and this is in volume 12, against uh, Socinian. And what happens when someone accuses you of being a Socinian? You punch them in the face and ask for forgiveness. That's what we learned, that's what we learned earlier, right? Uh, but in this case, it is true. So John Owen reasons from his absolute independence and firstness in being and operation. If God were of any causes, internal or external, any principles antecedent or superior to him, he could not be so absolutely first and dependent. Were he composed of parts, accidents, manner of being, he could not be first, for all these are before that which is of them. And therefore, his essence is absolutely simple. Second, God is absolutely and perfectly one and the same, and nothing differs from his essence in it. And he cites Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, as well as Revelation chapter 1, 8. He then, this is Owen, who is what he is, and whose all that is in him is himself, 
hath neither parts, accidents, principles, nor anything else whereof his essence should be compounded. Third, the attributes of God, which alone seem to be distinct things in the essence of God, are all of them essentially the same with one another. And every one of them the same with the essence of God itself. So this is not an extreme doctrine of divine simplicity. This just is the reformed doctrine of divine simplicity. This is not a hyperextended application of divine simplicity. This is just things that the reformed church has passed down through the teaching of scripture as preserved in the confession of faith. Fourthly, that God is and must needs be a simple act, which expression Mr. B fixes on for the rejection of it. In other words, his opponent is rejecting the fact that God is one simple, pure act. And what we mean by pure act, we mean that there's no potentiality in God. God cannot be more than he is. God cannot be less than he is. He's the infinite, eternal I am. Anyways, his opponent rejects that. God must be a simple act, is evident from this one consideration, which was mentioned before. If he be not so, there must be some potentiality in God. Whatever is and is not a simple act hath a possibility to be perfected by act. If this be in God, he is not perfect, nor all-sufficient. Every composition, whatever, is a power of act, which, if it be or might have been in God, he cannot be said to be immutable, which the Scriptures plentifully witness that he is. God is not composed of things. When we have composition, we introduce potentiality into the being of God, and that is not the God of the Bible, according to Exodus 3.14. It is not the God of the Bible, according to John Owen. The God of the Bible, the God of men like John Owen, is a God who is pure act. So when we speak of the attributes of God, we distinguish them in their operations, we distinguish them in their effects, we distinguish them in our mind, but we do not distinguish them in God. We say this speaks of God truly, but it does not speak of God wholly. The next part says God is without passions. Go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 35, verses 6 and 7. And when we say that God is without passions, did I say Deuteronomy? I meant Job. Turn to Job, I'm sorry. When we say that God is without passions, what we're saying is that God cannot be acted upon. God cannot be acted upon from the created order, nor can God act upon himself and make himself a patient of his own work. This is not just saying that God doesn't have erratic emotions. This is not just saying that God has passions, but he knows how to control them, whereas we have passions, but we don't know how to control them. This doctrine is built on the idea that God's life is one of complete eternal bliss. You add nothing to the blissfulness of God, and you can't ever take away from the blissfulness of God. God is eternally blessed in and of himself. He can't increase that. He can't decrease that. You can't increase that, and you can't decrease that. Job 35, verse 6. If you have sin, what do you accomplish against him? All the sin in the world, as it ascends to heaven, does it affect the eternal bliss of God? 
No. And if your transgressions are many, what do you do to Him? The unbelievers in the world, all the sin that they commit, the believers in the world and the sin that we still commit, even though we are in Christ Jesus, does not make God sorrowful. It does not bring Him down from His eternal bliss. God is without passions. He cannot be acted upon from the outside, nor can He act upon Himself as He lives His perfect, full life of eternal bliss. This one alone hath immortality. He cannot, his life cannot be changed or corrupted in any way whatsoever. We move now to the, uh, the, uh, the attributes of God with the part in the confession that says the God who is. And I'm going to say that these are negative attributes and there is one that stands out as probably not a negative attribute and that's almighty, right? Stating something positively about God. But I think it's also affirming that there is nothing that God cannot do because he is infinite. That said, God is immutable. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. And as a consequence of that, therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. And it's important that we, here we have something that's true about the life of God, and then we also have something true about the acts of God in history. Steve, pulled, uh, he, he referred to an Old Testament scholar earlier who looked at Exodus 3.14 and reduced everything to redemptive history. I love redemptive history. It's great. But it's not the most fundamental thing that is. God is the most fundamental thing that is. We affirm that God acts in history, but we affirm that history does not define or confine God's life. If you take away the Hobbit, you also take away Bilbo Baggins. But you don't touch J.R.R. Tolkien by taking away the Hobbit. That make sense? God is not like Bilbo Baggins in that analogy. God is like the author whether the book exists or not, J.R.R. Tolkien still is who he is. I don't change. That's who I am. As a consequence, you in redemptive history are not consumed. Yes, God is faithful to his people, Exodus 3.14, but he's faithful to his people because he is the I am apart from his people. He's immutable. No changes in creation, no changes brought about by incarnation, no changes in God's essence, nor changes in God's will. God does not change. God is immense. Immensity and eternality are us speaking about what we understand to be space and time and God's relationship to that. God is immense in that there is nothing that can spatially limit God. God has no parts. He has no spatial parts. He's not more here than he is in any other part of the world right now. He's not less in another part of the world than he is here. The fullness of God is present to his creation. God is eternal. Eternality consists in three components. God is without beginning, and God is without end. But God, this is the third one, is also without any succession of moments. There are things that have beginnings, that will not end, but undergo succession of moments. God is without beginning and without end, but his mode of existence is an eternally present I am. There is no change in God. He has no temporal parts, which means just as God is not spatially further from you here than somewhere, someone somewhere else in the world, God is not temporally distant from you, further temporally distant from you today than he is from you tomorrow. 
God is as near to you right now as he was, as he is the day of your birth, as he is the day of your death. He is not spatially distant from all of you, nor is he temporarily distant from all of you. I have five daughters. I think back to when they were little. I'm temporarily distant from Verity, my oldest, from the moment she was born. I lament that. That's part of my creatureliness. That's not what it means to be God. God is as near to her. What is my then is his eternal present as he is to her now, as he is to her in the day of her death. God is also incomprehensible. Why the repetition? The first one functions as theological grammar, whereas I think the second one is used to describe maybe what we would call an attribute of God. The first affirms that God can comprehend himself. The second clearly refers to the fact that no creature can comprehend him. He is almighty. There is nothing that God cannot do. God is the one who calls into being that which does not exist, as Paul says in Romans chapter 4. He is infinite in every way. Why? Because he's not composed of parts, because he's not mutable, because he's not subject to change. He is infinite in every single way. Then we look at these attributes of of eminence. God is most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute. And when we come to these, we don't want to think of God as being higher up the chain of being than we are. As, As Steve talked about, God is not a bigger version of ourselves. So it's not like We love 75% and God loves 100% because he's the most loving. He's just like us, but further further up along the chain. No, when we are saying most, we are affirming that God has these things as he has his existence from himself. We receive these things. We grow in these things. We have them in a finite way. We have them in a mutable way. We have them as parts. God is the furthest thing upstream in holiness, the furthest upstream in wisdom, the furthest upstream in freedom, and most absolute, which means there's nothing more fundamental or supreme than the Holy One of Israel. We come to number six in this first part of the chapter, the God who works all things. You see, the intellect of God in counsel You see, the will of God, as he works all things after his twofold description of his will, as immutable and most righteous. The confession continually ties immutability to the will of God and infallibility to the knowledge of God. Mm -hmm. So God's will is unchanging, and his will is perfect and righteous. Again, in his interactions with creatures, he is most loving, most gracious, most merciful, most long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, and we praise the Lord. This God who is these things exercises works among his creation, and of those he is the one who forgives sins and iniquity. This great God that we have spoken about is the one who forgives rebel sinners of their transgressions against an infinitely holy God. The next part, chapter, paragraph 2 of the confession, we're going to skip through very quickly, not because of time, but because I already planned that. A lot of what is said in uh, paragraph 2 is rooted in paragraph 1 and is then further explained in chapters 3 and 4 with the decree of God and the creation of the world. And so this, think of this uh, paragraph 2 as something that helpfully connects the things that have come before and the things in the, chap- in the, in the confession that are going to come later. Okay, so 
Um, God having all life, glory, and goodness, and blessedness in and of himself is alone and unto himself all sufficient. Now we're going to make some negative statements just to bring clarity. He stands in need of nothing from creatures. He does not derive any glory from creatures. What does he do? He manifests his glory, but does not derive any glory. God doesn't lose glory. God doesn't gain glory. We recognize his glory. You look at an artwork, and you admire it for its beauty. You go to a symphony, and you listen to beautiful music. Your admiration of that music adds nothing to the music. Your adoration of that painting adds nothing to the painting. It just is what it is. It's, it, it's, it's beauty is manifested to us, and we, we receive it, but it doesn't grow in what it is. When someone hits a home run, and people cheer, the ball doesn't go further than it went. It is a home run. It happened. We are recognizing the greatness in the same way we recognize the great glory of God. He is the one who is most sovereign. Why? Because he's the supreme, absolute ruler who is most free. Some statements about his knowledge. All things are open and manifest to his knowledge. His, God's knowledge is infinite. Not just in the things that he knows, but how he knows them. It's very possible that now or sometime in the future, either we or the, the uh, Christ Jesus, according to his humanity, will know all things. Does that mean that we're somehow God now because we know all things? No. You can know everything there is to know, but you don't know it like God knows it. God knows it from himself. You know it from God. So we can never be infinite knowers, even if we know all things that there are to know. God's knowledge is infallible. Again, infallibility connects to God's knowledge. Immutability is connected to God's will. God's knowledge is independent upon the creature, and down goes Molinism. God doesn't know things because of creatures. God doesn't know things because of things that are going to happen in time. God knows things because he has decreed all things, and his decree of all things grounds his knowledge of all things, so that nothing to him is contingent or uncertain. It's not that the created realm is not contingent. It's that upon the immutable will of God, what God has decreed to make surely will come to pass. It is not uncertain to God what will happen tomorrow because we call it tomorrow. God doesn't have a tomorrow. As a result, we as creatures owe this infinite creator worship in whatever he is pleased to require of us. So this, uh, this paragraph ends by recognizing our duties grounded in the creator-creature distinction. And now I have five minutes to talk about the triune God. <laughs> Doug has had some self-fulfilling prophecy that he gave earlier. But yes, let's move to the third paragraph of the confession. It uses the word subsistence again. This is the second time in the confession that it uses the word. The first time it refers to the being or essence of God. We're not saying that there's three subsistences in one subsistence. We're saying the essence of God is from himself, not from another. When we use subsistence here, we're saying, how is this one God? How is the Father God? How is the Son God? And how is the Spirit God? That's what the language of subsistence is getting at. Now, this concept of subsistence is not theologically new to the confession, but it is confessionally unique. In other words, you don't find the language of subsistence in the Westminster Confession of Faith, nor do you find the language of subsistence in the Savoy Declaration. You find the language of person. The word subsistence is a more technical description of what a person is. 
Think about what a person is, and if you have not thought about it before, you go, that's kind of complicated. And I guarantee you, you're most likely to take things that belong to nature, like will, like self-consciousness, and move them into person. The word subsistence prevents that, and we want to prevent that for reasons that I don't have time to get into right now. But I do want to make this point. As a confessional people, we ought to love precision. Why? Because our forefathers loved precision precision. Yeah. We're more precise here than our Westminster brothers are and our Savoy brothers are. And so we ought to be passionate about, subsist- about uh, not just subsistences, because that's our triune God, the language and the way they're doing it here, we ought to adore and appreciate theological precision, because it helps us not be heretics. And that's a good thing. Just in case there was a... In case that was not clear... The three subsistences are the Father, the Word, or the Son. Word or Son. That's important because sometimes we can read analogies about sonship onto the Son that just don't fit onto Word. What does it mean for the Word to eternally submit to the Father? That's not as easy to say as it is for the Son to eternally submit to the Father. It's wrong to say that, but when we use Word, it helps protect us from moving creaturely analogies onto the Godhead, which is always a bad move. The three subsistences are the Father, the Word of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are one substance, one power, one eternity. That is, the beginning of the Son did not happen in time the way that the creation of the world happened in time. The procession of the Spirit did not happen at Pentecost. That's the mission of the Spirit. The Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son, which means we don't just love subsistences, we love the filioque clause. These three persons, each having the whole divine essence, not parts of the essence, the essence is not divided, it can't be, it's simple. We don't put the simple essence of God in competition or in tension with the three persons of the Godhead. We say the Father has the one simple, undivided whole essence from himself. The Son has that same one simple, undivided divine essence from the Father. And the Spirit, likewise, from the Father and the Son. These persons are distinguished, not differentiated. Distinguished. There's a difference. When we say that something is different, we're saying this is one thing and that's another thing. I'm one thing and you are another thing. We can differentiate ourselves. We do distinguish the persons, but these persons just are the one God. And we say different, we start to move towards language of this one being God and this one being a different God and this one being a different God. One God distinguished by peculiar relative properties and personal relations. Again, relations. We can read creaturely, and creaturely thoughts onto that term relation. We, and the word that we want to read onto it is relationship. To be in a relation to something and to have a relationship with something are two totally different things. Hopefully you don't have to dig into an analogy from your past to figure that one out. That could be painful. But if you, have, if you were given up for adoption and you never knew your parents and your mother or your father comes in through the door and I say, what's your relation to that person? You say, I am from that one. 
What's your relationship to with that person? You may say something like, I don't have one. I'm in relation to them as mother and son or mother and daughter, but there's not a relationship that is here. And so sometimes we can read things like, again, the eternal submission of the son being this relationship that he has with the father. No, that's not what we mean when we say relation. We're saying this one relates to this one, and this third one relates to these two. How do they relate? The Son is the one who is from the Father. The Father is from none. The Spirit is from the Son and the Father. So look at the confession. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son, eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit, proceeding from the Father and the Son. So we're saying the Father is from none. The Son is eternally and infinitely and wholly undivided from the Father. That's what it means for him to be Son. What does it mean for this one to be Spirit and not grandson of the Father or son of the Father or mother of the Son? It means that he is the one who is from the Father and from the Son. These peculiar relative properties are just simply identified in their names. The one is Father. We say paternity of him. The one is Son. We speak of filiation of him. The one is Holy Spirit. We speak of his procession. And all this is done infinitely, eternally, and in unity or in simplicity, each of them having the whole undivided divine essence. Which doctrine that we have sought to explain very shortly of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and our comfortable dependence upon him? So two quick applications from this teaching. And the first is carry this doctrine of God with you everywhere else you go in the confession. Obviously, yes, in your life as well. But as far as reading the confession, we ought to take this with us everywhere we go. We come to Christ the mediator in chapter 8. What did we say earlier? His human nature cannot comprehend the infinite. Even if Christ knows all things according to his humanity, he does not know them the same way that he knows them as God. We don't make Christ's deity lessen because it's not made up of parts. It can't lessen. It's immutable. It can't change. Well, didn't Christ suffer? Didn't he undergo passions? Absolutely. He, Hebrews chapter 2, took on humanity and suffered. The Spirit didn't take on humanity. The Spirit didn't suffer. The Father didn't take on humanity. The Father didn't suffer. Why? Because the Father and the Spirit are God. The Son doesn't suffer as God for the same reason that the Father doesn't and the Spirit doesn't. The Son suffered as man, taking to himself humanity, undergoing the curse of death of the cross, etc. Take this doctrine of God with you as you read the entire confession. Why is chapter 1 so significant? Because the God of chapter 2 speaks. That's why it's so significant. The second is be careful how you apply the doctrine of God. Be careful how you apply the doctrine of God. The confession helps us here. Are you a sinner? Go to him for forgiveness. Do you seek to be blessed by God? Come to him in Christ Jesus and he's a rewarder of all who seek him. Do you sin? This infinitely holy God is the one who punishes sin. Turn from your sin. Are you a creature? 
You owe worship to Him. How? Not as you feel, but as He has prescribed in Holy Scripture. You are the creature. He is the Creator. He can make commands on your life. The doctrine of the Trinity, the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon Him. We are drawn to this eternal, infinite Father through the eternal, infinite Son by the eternal, infinite Spirit. The confession guides us in our application of the doctrine of God, and all of it ends in lifting our eyes heavenward to the worship of God. None of it ends with us turning to creation, figuring out how we can use God in our creation to make something better. It's not why God exists. He exists for himself. And so we ought to worship him accordingly. Do I pray? Please do. Pray, yeah, okay. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Son in heaven, Spirit in heaven, three in one, one in three, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, all-glorious God, who is getting absolutely nothing from this prayer. And yet we still praise you, for you are worthy of all our praise and adoration. Father, we ask that as we leave here from this place, we would adore our God more. We ask that as we worship tomorrow, we, are, we would recognize that we are coming to worship the eternal God. May we not be like the beasts of the field and keep our eyes down low. Father, lift our eyes to heaven that we may worship and adore, and adore our triune God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now for the fun part. The questions that you guys have all prepared for Brother Drew in chapter 2 of our Confession of Faith. And uh, I get to start. So I think with chapter 2, the things that I've heard from people when they've heard the confessional historic, you know, articulation of the doctrine of God is the ones that they have the most challenges with is about his impassibility, his lack of passions, or the simplicity. I'm just going to pick passions because that's the one that I hear the most of, and I'd like to get your response. So sometimes when we hear, you know, this articulation of Dr. God is like, well, you know, they just the way you sound, the way you make it sound is if, uh, you know, I can't increase or decrease, you yeah. know, his blessedness. Yeah. That he's not grieved over my sins, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It kind of yeah. makes God sound cold, yeah. sterile. Yeah. But when I read Genesis 6, 6, for instance, yeah. the Lord was sorry that he made man on earth, mm -hmm. that he was grieved in his heart. And yeah. I'll just read one more. Isaiah 65, 3. A people who continually provoke, there's that word, yeah. me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks. There's a sense of righteous anger from God being provoked as anger. Can you give us just some, I guess, practical approach to these portions of Scripture that seem to be conveying a passion yeah. of God that's similar to ours, but yeah. yet we know theologically is not? Mm -hmm. How would you handle those texts? A few things. First, God being without passions, the doctrine of impassibility, is really the fruit of all of our other doctrinal commitments about God. It is an entailment of divine immutability. right? So follow, because God is immutable, God does not have passions or affections that move up and down. He, he, he doesn't, doesn't change. change. Right. Exactly, yeah. Um, and so it's really the fruit of a theological system, right? Uh, but then the question is then, how do, we, how do we come back now and read this? Doesn't this make God sound cold? And I get why at first glance it does feel like God is cold when we say that, but I would actually say that to say otherwise means that God is cold and he has to heat himself up for you. 
right? And so I don't think my view of God is cold. I think people who think that God has to move himself or be moved emotionally in his inner life some way have a cold God that needs to be moved. I have to be moved to love my wife. As amazing as she is, as far out of my league as she is, I have to move myself to love her. God doesn't have to become something different to love us. He just is himself loving us. So he doesn't have to move from a state of coldness to be heated up. So I would say God is the heat is already turned on full burner. It's not that he is cold. It's that he is full of life and can't be any more full of life than he is. A view that says God has to go through something like that is a God who God does move from cold to hot, and that just makes God look like us. So, and I think that's actually the more cold version. God has to become something other than he is to love you. So then, of course, this has to have feet to the ground. How do we interpret the text, right, obviously? Because we don't want to impose a theological system on the text. Although we do want to recognize we want to avoid univocal God talk. The finite cannot comprehend the infinite. We're not speaking about me when we're saying something Genesis chapter, like Genesis chapter 6. God does not repent like I repent. God is not sorrowful like I am sorrowful. Why? I change my mind. My plans stink. God's plans don't stink, and God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't have second thoughts. God has never had a second thought. And that's not an imperfection for a being who, to, to not have second thoughts. That, we have second thoughts because we're not sure about our first thoughts. right? So then, how do we interpret the text? Francis Turretin, who I love Francis Turretin, um, he talks about, we do not consider these in God pathetically, meaning in himself as uh, passions that are moving up and down. We look at them energetically. In other words, we look at the effects. So what is the most fundamental thing about repentance? That there's a change in the effect from the pursuit of sin to the pursuit of righteousness. Right? So there's a change in the effect. When we talk about something like Genesis chapter 6 with God, what has happened? Well, we learn when we see that God is sorrowful that God truly hates sin. Why? Because that's in opposition to his eternal bliss. Okay, we see that. We also see that when there is sin, God will act upon sin in such a way that is that reveals that it is something that is heinous. And so there's a change in the external action of God. Once it was going this way, and now the effect is going this way. But that does not mean that there's something that's internal to God that is changing. So when we see repentance, we see a difference in effects, but not a difference in the being of God himself. And that's where Turretin gets the language of not pathetic. I think it's pathetically, I think is, is, is the word he uses. Not something uh, inside of him um, as a passion, uh, but energetically out of him. He had, we see this effect, and now there's an effect that's much different than that effect. And what do we call that as creatures? We call that repentance as creatures. Mm-hmm. But God does not undergo that. Mm-hmm. That's how I would answer that question. Any other questions? Yeah. Okay. Could you tease out uh, the essential distinction between the language of persons in chapter three versus what we have in some sentences? You kind of teased on a little bit. How yeah. Necessary. We don't try to uh, put creaturely in our understanding of God. Yeah. Could you tease out a little bit more. Why is uh, subsistence is better than persons? Yeah. Well, Augustine said we say persons because we have to say something. Right? It's, and so there, there is something that we do have to say. There's a way in which God is three. There's a way in which this one is God, and this one is God, and this one is the one God. There's a way in which these three are the one God. And, and they're not 
objects. They're not irrational things. They have a rational nature. They don't have their own individual rationality and their own individual center of self-consciousness. They have the one intellect of God, the one power of God, the one eternity of God, the one infinity of God. Right? There's no other person like that. Every other person we talk about has a, one center of self one person, one center of self-consciousness. One person, one will. One person, one essence. One person, one power. When we start to speak about the triune God, we're speaking about one will, one power, one essence subsisting in three persons. So we're set, all, all we're, we're trying to make sure we don't move things from nature into person. That's the key concern that's there. And that doesn't merely present, prevent us from having a bunch of Trinitarian problems. It also prevents us from having a bunch of Christological problems as well. Right? So, uh, so for example, Christ's knowledge. Right? So what happens when Jesus says, I don't know the day or the hour of, of my return? Is he speaking about his humanity or is he speaking about his deity? Well, if, if we say he has his own will and center of self-consciousness, we're going to say, as God, he stopped knowing things as God. He also stopped acting as God. He stopped upholding the universe as God. Well, then we're going to have to introduce temporality to God. Because to go from knowing something to not knowing something is not just without beginning, without end. It's a, it's a mode of change in the being of his existence. And so now we have to introduce temporality into God. And then all the domino effects keep going because this is all a nice, clean bundle. If you pull the string on this, everything else, everything else comes apart, right? Um, so we, we want to avoid putting all those things into person so that we don't split up the Godhead and we don't create some type of subordination within the Godhead and then we're able to have the type of Christology that can save us. Now, whether we acknowledge that that Christology is what's necessary to save us, it is the Christology that's necessary to save us. Um, we may grow an understanding of that. So it's, we're trying to protect that. And by subsistence, what we're communicating is, how is this one God? By person, we're indicating that it's not some type of object like a rock. There is a rational nature and a will. But that, subs- that one rational nature and that one will subsists in the three persons. Is that helpful? Yeah. Okay. A question today is, Regarding eternal submission of the Son versus temporal submission, twice you spoke to that, but it wasn't clear yeah. how you were using it. Yeah, so, um, sorry that that was not clear. Um, okay, that's no, it probably wasn't clear a period of time. So, um, the, the, there are some who say that, and, and there, there are various ways that they do this, but that the Son eternally submits to the, to the Father. Uh, and this is what can be known as either ERAS or EFS, E-R-A-S, ERAS, Eternal Relations of Authority and Submission, and EFS, Eternal Functional Subordination. That the Son is equal in essence to the Father, but he submits to and obeys the Father from all eternity, and that's just what it means for him to be Son. So if there was no creation, if there was no world, what it means for him to be Son is to be eternally submissive and obedient to the Father. That's, that, that's what eternal relations of origin is. I'm sorry, eternal uh, relations of authority and submission, and that's what eternal functional subordination is. the same thing, just two different ways of describing it um, for various reasons. Uh, but those are two different ways, or two different terms to describe the same reality. Uh, when you start to say that you're going to start introducing multiple wills in God, um, people try to avoid that. I don't think you can successfully avoid that. You're also going to uh, introduce potency in God. 
you're going to introduce the fact that the father is doing something that the son is not doing, and the son is doing something that the father is not doing. Uh, so you start to run into many different problems along those lines. Does the son submit to the father? Absolutely, as man. So if there's one will, the father has the one will, the son has the one will, the spirit has the one will, it's the whole essence, it's the whole will, it's an undivided will, then they will the same thing. When Christ, who is a person, but we don't put will in person, we put will in nature. When Christ assumes humanity to himself and takes another nature to himself, he now has two wills. He has the divine will from the Father and, 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 and with the Spirit, the same divine will. Uh, and then he has a human will, a created human will in time. And with that human will, he lives in obedience. But we would distinguish those two wills and say his divine will does not submit to the Father any more than the Father could submit to the Son. Um, but with his human will, he does submit to the Father. Could you, so talking about taking this doctrine of God across the confession with us. Yeah. Could you relate in chapter 2, God's spirituality and not having a body, yeah. to the statement in chapter 31, that in glory we will behold the face of God in life and glory? Yeah. Um, so I think that is uh, sight. We, <laughs> we think eyeballs are required for sight because that's how we see. God does not have eyes. And yet God manages to see just fine. Right? And so eyes clearly are not, fundament, are not necessary for sight. Well, what do we mean by sight then? We mean a kind of immediate knowledge. When you open up your eyes and you look and you see that I'm wearing a white shirt, you don't have to do any work to do that. You open up your eyes and, oh, Drew's wearing, Drew's wearing a white shirt. Uh, that's the type of knowledge we get from sight. So when God sees all things, he just immediately knows all things. Why? Because it all follows from his immutable will. And so, um, there are, so then, as far as that goes, there's two ways you can answer that question. Uh, you can say that the sight of God is not a sight of the eyes. We do not see the essence of God. The essence of God is invisible. He dwells in unapproachable light. Um, the glorification does not change that. Then there are some, and I think this is Owen's view, who has said, we behold the glory of God in Christ. So there is something we do see with our eyes, and that's the human nature of Christ, and that's because the human nature of Christ is not invisible or incomprehensible. It is a body with parts, etc. So we can see that with our visible eyes. So one day, in the new creation, um, or upon death, when you don't have eyes, I still think you're going to see something. Uh, you're going you, you, you're to see the human nature of Christ, and then you're going to have a kind of knowledge we would describe as sight, of God, but in a way that doesn't violate incomprehensibility either. Yeah. Yes, sir. Okay, uh, Actually, sorry, let me, Silas right here in the back. Yeah, so Psalm 94, I think it is. He who made the ear, can he not hear? He who made the mouth, can he not speak? It's essential for you and me as creatures to have mouths to speak. God doesn't need a mouth to speak. We need a part in order to do that. God doesn't need anything to do that. And so when, when we, we as humans know that speech for us requires a mouth. Speech for God does not, does not require a mouth. Sounds are made in creation. I know nothing about sounds, so I'm going to stop right there. But it's a created effect where we hear things from God, and then I, unless I reveal any more of my ignorance, I'll stop talking about sound waves.
Yeah. Yes, sir. I'm just trying to work through yeah. some of these words. Subsistence. Yeah. Eternally begotten. Yeah. None. Father is of none. Yep. And proceeding. Yeah. Now, when I was younger, I had a pastor teach me that God created, I think it was a pastor, I, I don't know, but that God created man so that he could have a relationship. Yeah. So he could have companionship. Yeah. Well, this word subsistence tells us that God was completely uh, able to exist without anything else. Amen. Right? Yeah. That he didn't need love. He had eternal love with the Trinity. Yeah. So I'm trying to understand these words. Uh, yeah. The the Father is of none, but the Son is eternally begotten. Yep. And I had another teacher in my young days who would quote First Corinthians, I guess, where it says, chapter 15, verse 28. That the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, so that God may be all in all. Yeah. And He would teach that God was once not triune. Yeah. Now, I, that goes against what we learn here. Amen. And I believe what we learned here today is true. Me too. But, but the <laughs> I mean, yeah, but the understanding is that or the teaching I had then. Yeah. I think God, one day, Christ will submit fully. God will go back to being one nature, uh, mm -hmm. one person. Yeah. Now, I cannot comprehend this this uh, statement that God, is, the Father is of none, and neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit is proceeding from the Father and the Son. It doesn't explain the Trinity. To me, okay. Obviously, I'm sure we we're all there. Yeah. But the fact that the Trinity is eternal. Yeah. That the Son is eternally the begotten Son. Right. Yet the words "begotten" is like more of the one and only. Right. Is that correct? I I would say that begotten means from. Well, from. Yeah. So so there there are some oh, there are, go finish. Are, 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 no, you, it's just. From proceeds from yeah. say came out of and yeah trying to put those things together right yeah and that's why those negative statements in the confession are and so the, helpful the false teachings that I made absolutely in the past. yeah so because you're talking getting rid of yeah those. so let me, let me, if I forget to address something don't hesitate to remind me but let me just walk through this you're, you're talking about the heresy of modalism which is that there's one person in the Godhead, and that one person manifests himself as one time as Father, another time as Son, and another time as Spirit. And that's not, that's I don't not, believe in modalism. I'm saying that... Oh, I know you don't, yeah. Okay, this pastor said that someday in the future, yeah. Christ will give everything back to the Father, and yeah. will become one then. Right. Not now. Father, right. Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, same essence, that's what yeah. That so I'm not gonna. I'm not claiming to know what this person said. Yeah. I'm My just, guess it's either a form of modalism, like I just described it, or it's a form of modalism that would that would also have some form of adoptionism in it, where Christ is a is a man and a mere man, not an eternal person, um, and then he is adopted by God and given a special task by God to complete, but is not truly God. My guess is it's probably some version or some 
convoluted mix-up of one of those things. Um, the eternal relations of origin are helpful. These are what are called the so uh, that the Father is uh, that the Son is eternally from the Father, and that the Spirit is from the Father and from the Son. These are called the eternal relations of origin. Okay, these are eternal. There was no time when the Son was not from the Father. In fact, the Son is eternally from the Father. So sometimes we can even speak of the Son being begotten as something that happened and is done, but then we're imputing temporality onto God. The Son is eternally from God. That is how He is God. Is I'm sorry, eternally from the Father. That is how He is God, and that is how He always is. Um, and the Spirit, the same, is eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Um, I believe all that. Great. So I proceeding, yeah. So that join the club. So uh, so uh, all all we're saying is that this one is from one. When we talk about gener- eternal generation, um, there's not really much of a difference between the son being generated and the spirit proceeding. They're just different ways of describing the same thing. Because what we're trying to preserve is the fact that there is one who is from one. And that is the Son is from the Father. And then there's one who's from two. And that is he's from the Father and the Son. Both of them are processions. We call the one belonging to the Son generation. Okay? These things are what are called relations of origin. So that, that fromness language is relation of origin. But they're also called relations of opposition. Which means that they cannot be collapsed on one another. If you have an eternal Father... What do you have? An eternal son. You have to. Because if you, you to have an eternal father without having an eternal son is nonsense. Right? That's what it means for him to be father, is that he's from none. All earthly fathers are from, with the exception of Adam. But Adam was made, right? Uh, but any, any father in the room here is from another father. Right? Uh, but when we speak of this father, we want to remove any type of creaturely concept. So this is one who is from none. And we call this one who is from none, Father. Why? Because he is from none, and because one is from him. And what do we call one who is not from one, but has one from him? Well, we call them Father and Son. And then we have the Spirit. He is from not Father and Mother. So you can't call him Son. Right? That's not quite fitting. Uh, He is from the Father and the Son, but not as a grandson of the, of the father because he's a son of the son. So if you had a, a father, a son, and a son of the son, this is where confusion starts getting brought up into the Godhead. And this is why we, we look at passages like John chapter 1 where he's called the only begotten son of God. And it doesn't just mean uniqueness. Those in the 20th century who argued for the fact that it meant uniqueness said that the son is not from the father. Then they had to answer the question, what makes this one son then? If it's not that he's from, but we call him son, why do we call him son? Well, because he eternally submits to the Father. And that's so so those who were arguing for this in the 20th century denied that the son was from the Father. And so there had to be something that makes this one son, because we have to differentiate between these. And we have to differentiate between these because Scripture compels us to, really. Um, It's not just that we have to differentiate these things for the sake of us figuring this out. All this language is rooted in Scripture. The concept of word, you have, you have your mind and you have words that are from your mind. You don't ever think a wordless thought. And your word is, dis, is distinguished from your mind, and yet somehow it's a perfect reflection of your mind. 
That's the Son, who's also the Word. He's the radiance. He's flowing forth from the Father. Uh, and all that's eternally so. Um, and now I'm just continuing to go without remembering what we're exactly trying to get. Oh yeah, the 20th century. Yeah, so they had to say, why is this one son? Because of relations of authority and submission. And so they, didn't, they argued that that text meant that it, he was unique, not that he was be, eternally begotten. They argued that that was leftover pagan Greek thought. And one of the biggest proponents of that view, Wayne Grudem, has since retracted that in his new systematic theology. And, and this was due to the work of a man named Lee Irons. Is that, is that right, Lee Irons' article? Yes. Uh, in the book on eternal generation, uh, where he argues that monogenes, which is the word that we get only begotten from, means only begotten, not a unique one. Um, and Wayne Grudem has switched his view while still holding to the eternal relations of authority and submission. But I think that part's wrong. I commend him on changing his view to say that, yes, monogamous, that Greek word there, does mean only begotten. Praise the Lord for coming to the truth on that. But then that really renders everything else unnecessary. Because you were looking for something that distinguished the person. What is that? Well, if you deny that it's that he's from, from the Father, then you're going to insert something else like eternal relations of authority and submission. Is that helpful? A little bit. I would recommend Scott, Scott Swain's green book on the introduction to the Trinity in the Crossway series is excellent. I think what's holding me up is looking at that verse in Corinthians and looking at Revelation right. and God being just a, a one figure at the end of, the, yeah. of, of all things. And uh, so it's here, here, here's where this I know helps. I believe. I just, yeah. I just don't. I'm not able to say that this. I'm not able to connect the dots. It's okay. Yeah. Faith seeking understanding is an excellent mode of theological inquiry. So continue. I believe it. Lord, help me understand it. Is is the way forward. Um, let let me say it this way. All that you're talking about. Not I know that not that you believe it is all based on the created order. All that we're talking about here in the Trinity has nothing to do with the created order. And so 1 Corinthians 15 could not exist for various reasons, and the Son would still be the eternal Son of the Father. And I, and I believe that. Yeah. I don't understand 1 Corinthians 15 very well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that, in that we bring a lot of all these pieces to bear, the two natures, the two wills, the mediatorial work of Christ. We bring our doctrine of God to bear on all these other pieces, and that kind of helps bring helps fit all that together. I know this isn't about First Corinthians fifteen, but that's how I would approach that issue. Yeah. Just, I guess, a question of clarification, to make sure I understand, because I've struggled with the same thing. With yeah. The, uh, generation begottenness. Mm-hmm. So would you say that those, that those words are, are simply used to denote and explain the intertrinitarian relation to one another, without any kind of Right. You know, it's just it's simply how the Father relates to the Son relates to the Spirit. Yeah. And in light of revelation what we have. Would you say that's a good way of understanding why those words are chosen and the distinction made? I think those words like Son and Word and Father and Spirit are chosen by way of analogy that we would understand God. 
I think the fromness language is a little more clear. And so, uh, so you have that, this, the Spirit is the one who proceeds from the Father, Jesus says, in, 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 uh, in, in the Gospel of John in the upper room. The, he is the word from the Father. Uh, he is, it, all, you're seeing all this language through Scripture, and we are so tempted. I think it, we're so, John chapter 7 is a really good case study. Read John chapter 7 in the ESV, and then read John chapter 7 in the NASB, unless you know how to do some Greek work, then by all means go for it. Um, but John chapter 7 in the ESV makes it sound like the Son came from the Father to earth and is sent to earth from the Father. Well, maybe it's that he's from the Father eternally as the Son, as the eternal Son. And then, as the one who is eternally from the Father, he's also the one who is sent in time. And so we can read that from language and just pull it straight down into the created order and make this all about the fact that he became incarnate. But no, there's actually something that's communicating that's much deeper and richer than just the, what happens in, in redemptive history. And I think John chapter 7 is actually a really good example of that, where you see the Son is saying, I'm from the Father, from the Father, from the Father. And we have a natural tendency to think that it's all just about what's happening here. But then why is he saying he's from and sent? I think you have the eternal procession and the temporal mission. One according to his deity, one according to his humanity. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, our question's a little different. Um, it's all very interesting, and, and I'm, the more I studied, the more I'm interested in, in learning. More. Yeah. Um, and it seemed like in any section of, of the confession, there'd be all sorts of questions that come. Mm-hmm. And so my question basically is, we're coming up speed, I'm coming up speed. Yeah. The people that we're uh, preaching, yeah. teaching, yeah. they're at where they're at. What is... Do you have any suggestions on how to um, best bridge that gap? People have. It was mentioned in the first talk that you have to work. You yes. Have to work and study. Well, yeah. the, the people need to work. Right. To to receive and to learn. Right. And our culture is so changed that a lot of people want things quick and easy. Yeah. And and so I sometimes question how. Deep are going to think what kind of terms do I use and all that yeah. because you have a, a variety of people that you're yeah. you're talking to. Yeah. Any any thoughts on that? Um, I mean, besides reading good resources that will help you and being and being very patient. If you talked to me seven years ago, I would have been saying much different things than I said today. And even this week and the week before was a long, hard week of recognizing how feeble not only my mind is but my speech is. And trying to drill in what is this is think of when we're talking about God we're talking about grammar. This is how we think about reality, and we have to learn how to speak. I have a two-year-old; she puts her verbs in all of the wrong spots. Right? Um, I don't beat her when she does, um, but I help her move. And like eventually, like I have a ten-year-old daughter, and she needs to learn how to put her verbs in the right spot. Right? My two-year-old is going to come with time. Uh, it took me time to learn how to do this. In fact, it, it, it was it was not that long ago that I had a, a dear brother who's a who I respect uh, read something that I wrote and said, "No, Drew, you need to use the language of distinguished, like the confession does." He didn't say it that way, um, but that's that's what I heard in my soul, uh, and and I was like, "Yeah, duh. Why didn't I just use the language of confession and talk about how the Son is distinguished from the Father?" And so for us, for me personally, it's making sure I grab the confession, making sure I grab key uh, creeds, making sure I grab good, healthy resources, 
and I use language very carefully, and I try to say these, I try to say specific words, I try to use them repeatedly, I try to make sure I understand them, and then I try to say a bunch of things that are not true, like relation and relationship, right? Someone walks into your room, that's your mother, what's your relationship to her, and what's your relation to her? Those are two very different questions. And so here's a helpful analogy, and you can, you know, you can use something, I chose not to use an analogy that was like, you have a relation to the pulpit right now. But it's not a person, so I didn't, I didn't think it was a helpful analogy. So learning how to use analogies that are going to convey the truths that Scripture requires us to speak. Um, and then just being very patient. I mean, I'm, it, it's taken me a long time to learn how to speak properly about God. And it's taken me a long time to learn how to speak properly about God. It's going to take our people a long time to learn how to speak properly about God. And that's okay, because like I said, I have a two-year-old, and I'm very patient with her as she learns how to speak, and I'm trying to understand her God is very gracious to us. God does not save us because we speak perfectly about God. God saves us because we, in, in spite of the fact that we rebelled against God, and still don't know how to speak about it properly. So patience. Did I answer? Yeah, partially. There's more things I can yeah. take on all, but it's um, once our folks I believe have been this is kind of confession I guess I think the people have been um, given weak food too long mm-hmm. and so there's a, there's a big uh, learning curve if you will yeah. about the right words yeah. to come up and you know so I've, I've been trying to, you know, to preach expositionally and yeah. we've, we've adopted a confession and different yeah. things but and sometimes maybe we can go too quick. Yeah. Um, and so I was just wondering if you had maybe illustrations of people who've taken a church <coughs> and of kind of weakness to be stronger. Yeah. Now, I've been to ordination councils and I've been disappointed in ordination councils the kind of questions that are asked. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's sort of broad based. Yeah. Maybe I'm the one else experiencing the same. Oh no, I think we all experience that. I think you know, but I think if you can just, if I can get my people to see that God is the most fundamental, supreme reality, and that the most important thing that they can walk out of after tomorrow's Lord's Day is that they have comfortable dependence upon God because of the who the Triune God is. Man, that's a huge. That's a huge win. If I, you know, everything is downstream from God. I don't have to teach. I mean, I think I think we should be teaching these things. Most Christians are going to agree that all that is in God is God. God's not made up of things that aren't God. Most yeah. Christians are going to go, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Like you got things that are made up, you know, and, and those things break down. You know, I got a I got a coat that doesn't have buttons on one side. It's still a coat. Still still does a job. That's, that's not essential to what it's doing as a coat. God's not like my coat. Most Christians are going to go. That makes sense. <laughs> God's not like Drew's coat. No, that's in the, oh, re- in the red, yeah. Yeah, uh, how do you, what do you say to uh, an individual, because I know numerous people and even have family that believe in the kenosis of Christ, that he yeah. did himself completely, and, and, and when he got baptized, he got the Spirit, and did all these works yeah. through the Holy Spirit. Yeah. yeah. I know a guy who wasn't caught up in the third heaven, but used to believe that. <laughs> Okay. 
Thanks, guys. <laughs> uh, what do you do with someone like that? Well, I mean, how do you win to explain it to them, to help them to understand that that's not, that he didn't cease being God? That, yeah. 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 Um, what does it mean for God to stop being God? And if the Son can stop being God, can the Father stop being God? And if the Father can stop being God, can the Spirit stop being God? And can they all three stop at the same time? And if they all three stop at the same time, what happens? That's scary. Was the the Son eternally upholding the world with the Father and the Spirit? And then was like, guys, keep holding it up. I'll be right back. You know, again, and I, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to mock or make light of these things, no, but when you have yeah. little things, most Christians again are going to be like, yeah, "That doesn't make any sense." Yeah, I, I know, I know it doesn't, but now we have to start talking about things like the extra Calvinisticum, and and what is that? That's saying that hey, while Jesus Christ was walking on Earth as a baby or as an infant, he was upholding that same Earth that he was walking on. Well, how do you do that? We have to have a good understanding of what persons and natures are. And again, all these things take time. An excellent resource on this would be, I mean, there's, there's lots of good resources, but quick, helpful introductions. Not only Scott Swain's Green Book, but Steve Wellham's Red Book in the same Crossway series on the Incarnation. Steve Wellham is good on, on uh, anti-kenosis. Um, James Dolezal is phenomenal. He's at a much higher level uh, than some of these other resources that I've recommended. Not that, not that he's higher than they are, but the, the types of writing and speaking he does. He taught um, at the Southern California Reformed Baptist Pastors Conference in November on how to be an anti-canonicist. And that lecture is available on YouTube for free. And I, I was there in person, and I think I've listened to it once through, and then maybe parts of it again. It's really good. What was his name? James Dolezal. D-O-L-E-Z-A-L. He also has a book. Books are for sale back in the book room. All That Is In God. Oh, okay. Two thumbs way up. Yeah, if you don't have that, you need to buy it. That's my recommendation. Thank you. Yeah.